1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Hi, everyone. I'm Brooke Burke. I'm Megan King-Edmonds. And I'm sex and intimacy coach Leela DeVille. And we have a podcast called Intimate Knowledge. Mm. That's what this show is about. Sex. Sex. But it's
0: so much more than that. It's about the ups and downs in your relationship, your sex life.
2: It's about overcoming heartbreak and infidelity.
0: It's about understanding intimacy and what makes you happy. And it's about everything you want to know, but you might be too embarrassed to ask. We're giving you intimate knowledge. Listen to Intimate Knowledge on iHeartRadio
2: app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find
1: us.
0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, I watched a movie recently called Away We Go. Mm -hmm. It features Maya Rudolph and John Krasinski as this expecting couple that is traveling the country trying to find a place to raise their child. That sounds precious. It is. It is precious. And um, one of the places they visit um, is where Maggie Gyllenhaal, a character played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, lives. But I'm just going to keep calling her Maggie Gyllenhaal. Okay. Um, is Is living. And she pa- practices something called attachment parenting, which kind of freaks out this young couple that is about to have a baby. And by attachment parenting, I mean that she's breastfeeding in front of them, even though her kids look to be kind of big. Um, she refuses to use strollers because she doesn't want to push her baby away from her. She wants to um, carry them very close to her everywhere. And um, then one of the things that really freaks out um, John and Maya's characters is that she has this giant bed that she, her husband, and the two children sleep in.
0: Two children?
2: Yes. Wow. And so um, that is when they start to get a little bit, you know... A little bit, I think, you see the fear in their eyes about this parenting situation. Now, it doesn't help that Maggie Gyllenhaal's character is really rude. So I think that it almost paints the whole attachment parenting movement as very holier than thou. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to talk about just one aspect of this attachment parenting thing today, and that's the big family bed that the four of them share.
0: Yeah, I think you're referring to co-sleeping, which is one of the eight principles, major principles of Attachment parenting, which uh, is really attributed to a pediatric a pediatrician named William Sears. Mm -hmm. So, do you want me to throw out a few of those uh, those eight principles so we get an idea of kind of what attachment parenting promotes? Yeah, lay it on me. All right, so uh, of course you want to you want you need to breastfeed because that uh, helps bond the infant to the mother. You need to respond with sensitivity. Uh, for instance, instead of just punishing a child for a tantrum, you need to recognize the behavior and respond to the behavior appropriately rather than just, um, you know, putting them in timeout or putting yes, them in a the corner. Yeah. Tantrums say things yes. according to this theory is so you have to figure out what they're trying to tell you with the tantrum. You also want to use a nurturing touch. They want, they encourage you to have most skin to skin contact with your child. And that can also include things such as baby massage. Mm-hmm. Um, practicing massage techniques for, for your wee one. Taking a bath together. Taking a bath together. Positive discipline. Um, working out a solution basically with your child rather than spanking or, uh, I guess sending in the time out once again. Um, and then beware of baby trainers, Molly. Attachment parenting thinks that you need to engage personally one on one with your, infant and child instead of just putting them under a, a mobile to entertain mm-hmm. them.
2: And, you know, this theory also came about, um, right before the rise of daycare. So also you would want an intermediate, um, between you and your attachment mm-hmm. or the attachment between you and your baby. So I think this is a good topic for stuff. Mom never told you, because I don't think that this is what our mothers would tell us about how to raise a child. I know that when I was a baby, um, I was asking my mom about this. This was not the way that you know she was taught to go about this. She was taught to, you know, discipline a kid who was having a tantrum to let them cry it out if they were trying to get to sleep instead of just coddling them. I certainly didn't get any baby massages, I don't think
0: that <laughs> you know of that you remember. <laughs> your infantile memory pretty good. Oh yes, I my mind's like a steel trap, crystal. <laughs> crystal clear. Um yeah, I think that we can attribute a lot of that to Dr. Richard Ferber, who is one of uh the most influential pediatricians uh I would say in the US. And he had a best-selling book in 1985, kind of around when uh you and I were were Small coming ones. into this world. Um, and it was called Solve your child's Sleep problems. and in it he invi- he advised parents to let babies cry for up to forty five minutes without responding and to train them to sleep on their own. and mm-hmm. that's kind of goes to the uh, the point you brought up about crying it out because he said, you know if you let a child cry to the point that they throw up and then once they throw up, you go and comfort them, you're just teaching them that throwing up is a way to get, you know, get your attention and almost be rewarded in a way.
2: Mm -hmm. So he was all about teaching a kid to sleep by themselves in a crib separate from you because this would create um, an independent adult later down the road. And this really kind of rubbed a lot of parents the wrong way because when you look at um, the worldwide way that people sleep with their infants – most cultures do practice sleeping in one big bed, probably because they don't have the space. They may not have the money. Um, you know, they just live in a very communal culture. So it's very um Western and particularly U.S.-centric to think that you put your baby down in a crib. And this, this divide exists today. We're reading these articles about people who say, we're all going to sleep in one big bed because this is the way it's done. And I think that it promotes a better bond between me and my baby and the people who are just like, oh, gosh, you're going to kill your child.
0: Well, and a, and a big change happened with all of this when Richard Ferber went back and uh, revised Solve Your Child's Sleep Problems and said that co-sleeping, it's not that bad. Yeah. I mean, he didn't come out and endorse it. Right. He was sort of saying you've got to measure
2: uh, what your kid needs, but it really has sparked kind of this renaissance, just even his mild rebuke of what he'd said earlier, this renaissance in people admitting that their family shares one bed when the baby is an infant.
0: Yeah, uh, according to an article we found on the New York Times, um, in 2000, nearly 13% of parents in the U.S. left with their infants, which was up from 5.5% in 1993, according to a report in the journal Infant and Child Development. But the article also points out that this might be, people might be lowballing this because a lot of parents tend to report where their child will start out the night rather than where they end up because a lot of parents might put the baby in the crib, uh, and then in the middle of the night, the, they'll have to go get the baby and wake up with it in bed with them.
2: Right. So they'll report what the child should do as opposed to what the child actually does. In fact, they put infrared cameras in some parents' bedrooms, and only half of the people um who the camera showed taking their baby into bed with them admitted that they had done that. So um people may not realize that they are co-sleepers, and in fact, that's a whole category of co-sleeping. There are people who decide before the baby's even born, that their family will share one bed because of this attachment theory of parenting. And then there are those who just kind of fall into it as a pattern because, um, you know, they pick up the baby for one reason or another and, Next thing you know, the morning's here.
0: Yeah, and then there are also there's a third category called circumstantial co-sleepers, and that's kind of when the the parent will end up sleeping with the child on occasion if, for instance, the child is very sick.
2: Mm-hmm. So now the positives, as we've mentioned, part of this attachment theory is that just being close, skin to skin, with the mother. Um, create sort of a healthy mindset in the child. There's not a ton of studies that back this up. In fact, the whole attachment theory of parenting can be kind of controversial because they based a lot of the studies on um apes, right? Some sort of baboon, monkey, family. I mean, it doesn't matter. Basically, it wasn't a human. But they started with this theory saying these Apes, for lack of a better word, really prefer being close to close. And then they kind of transcribe this onto humans. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear whether really sleeping close to your baby does in fact do anything, but it does serve a very practical purpose if you're breastfeeding.
0: Sure. Because, uh, that way you can, the mother can kind of rest a little bit more while the child is feeding. You don't necessarily have to get up out of bed. If the, if the baby starts crying, you can, you can feed right then and there and take care of it. Um, but there's also one of the main reasons why co-sleeping is so controversial is because there are some very severe risks associated with it. And this is one reason why the American Academy of Pediatrics discourages co-sleeping. And that's specifically because there is a correlation between co-sleeping and the possibility of SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome.
2: Right. Now, some people say this is, that this is really only a risk if a parent is smoking drinking too much alcohol or taking medication before they go to bed, basically anything that lowers your um, awake factor, I guess is a way to call it. If you were really heavily in slumber because you took like some Tylenol PM, then you might be more likely to roll over and suffocate the baby. But they're saying that if you're not under the influence, then you should be aware of your baby and not roll over on it. Now, I have problems with this, Kristen. I mean, I'm not a mother, but I have to say that I do all sorts of weird stuff in in sleep. I wake up in totally different positions than when I started. So will a baby stop that? I don't know. But I mean, if I have a baby, is it better to be constantly worried because I might roll over on it or constantly worried cuz it might be dead in its
0: crib? I don't know. Now, I'm like you, I I have no baby. No baby of my own to sleep with. But I will say that um I I did have a cat, uh-huh. may he rest in peace, um who would sleep with me. And I don't remember ever rolling over on him. I do remember throwing him off the bed sometimes when uh, he would try to wake me up in the morning by pawing at my face. But I don't think I, I ever. I was always very aware of where of where my little my little Kevin was. <laughs> oh, Kevin, he was an adorable cat. Listen.
2: Um, Sorry, now I'm just overwhelmed with thoughts of Kevin. I've got to get back on topic. So what you're saying is that it's possible that if I have this baby next to me, I, I, I'll be more aware. Sure,
0: I mean it's a warm, it's a warm little baby, and it's <laughs> yours, probably. But, I mean, Molly, I, I do have faith that if you if you put a baby beside you, you know, a, a little warm, little warm bundle of joy, mm-hmm. you'd probably be a little more aware. That it was there, especially because that's one of the tips that pediatricians give if you are going to co-sleep is to put the baby next to the mother because they think that you're gonna have some hypersensitive maternal awareness while you sleep. So I'll
2: be hypersensitive, Kristen, but will I get any sleep? Surveys say no. And in fact, they say that um well I think that all mothers, whether the baby's sleeping in the room or out of the room, are pretty sleep deprived. But they're saying that, you know, if your baby is sleeping in the bed with you they have more um instances of nighttime waking than babies who are sleeping in their own crib. So if your goal is to have a child who sleeps through the night on their own, then it seems like co-sleeping puts them at a disadvantage. However, one proponent of co-sleeping did say that it's likely that those babies are waking up in the other room. They're not probably sleeping through the night, mm-hmm. Um, that it's just you don't know that they wake up. So I don't know. That seems like uh, six of one, half dozen the other to me is... Do you want to wake up every time your kid wakes up or do you want to be able to have a kid that wakes up and goes back to sleep on its
0: own? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the essays that we read about co-sleeping, um, the mother compared it to sleeping with a uh, with a washing machine because, you know, I mean, you're going to be aware of all of its little movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a survey. In Parents Magazine that said that um, for six-month-olds, um, 60% of the crib sleepers, the parents reported that they were sleeping through the night compared with only 41% of the co-sleepers. But like you said, that could just be attributed to awareness. Like, you yeah. just won't, if your child's in the crib, you're not going to know every single time it wakes up.
2: All right, Kristen, so we're a few minutes into this podcast, this discussion of co-sleeping, and I think that there's a big elephant in the room,
0: sex. Yeah.
2: How do you nurture your marital relationship when there is a baby there? We read one essay from Parenting Magazine where the mother described building this tower of pillows to separate the baby from her and her husband while they were engaging in sex.
0: And Molly, I'm, I don't mean, I'm not calling this woman a bad mother, but I am saying that a tower of pillows <laughs> that could easily topple and fall on top of your little little infant while you're doing the deed does not sound like the best plan of action I don't think so either. Um, but again, we're not judging her. Yeah. I th-
2: but the thing is, is that you do see these articles where people say, you know, we just go ahead and have sex right there. That's what Maggie Gyllenhaal says in that movie that I was talking about earlier. Why would we want to hide our love from our children? And they do have these studies. I take them with a grain of salt because the guy who wrote about them is really into co-sleeping. That says the kids who do co-sleep, um, you know, with a madly in love couple have um healthier sexuality and healthier views on sexuality later on down the road is that true i don't know but it does seem that there are cultures around the world where you probably see your parents having sex and it's very western of us to be kind of like creeped out by that
0: but uh, nevertheless if parents are you know if parents do want to maintain a sex life but they are slightly uncomfortable with doing it while they have a baby there and it might just be hard to really you know get in the mood if you got a baby there i don't know i've never personally been in that in that situation (laughs) but it seems like it would be a factor for a co-sleeping couple um so going back to that parenting magazine essay her solution was to um take sex out of the bed and out of nighttime um reserve the bed and the night for sleeping only and then just get a little creative
2: yeah have sex all over the house instead of just in the bed yeah Because other cultures, what they keep, what all these articles keep going back to is that other cultures see a bed as a social place, whereas we Americans, we prudish Americans see it only as a sexual place. Mm -hmm. Is that so
0: prudish though? I don't know. It is and it isn't. But Molly, to dial... Dial down the mood that we have now elevated in our mom stuff studio. Uh, let's bring it back to SIDS. Oh yeah, nothing dampens a mood quite like Sid's. Because actually when I, when I mentioned to, um, uh, my sister, um, who is a mother, uh, that I, we were going to talk about co-sleeping today, that was the first thing that came to her mind was Sid's. She's like, you yeah, got, well, people are going to be concerned about Sid's. Um, because I think a lot of this is attributed to, a study that ended in 2004 that tracked mortality patterns, infant mortality patterns in the U.S. over a 20-year period. And it showed that accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed and co-sleeping arrangements um, had quadrupled over the two decades that that the study included.
2: Yeah, and I think that they have um really lowered SIDS rates all over the world by teaching parents to put the baby on their back, mm-hmm. um back to sleep, and that if there are still these high numbers of SIDS, then it must be due to the fact that, you know... These, these children have sleeping patterns unlike what the pediatricians are telling them to do.
0: Yeah. It said, and this was according to a Slate article on this study. And it says in cases of sudden unexpected infant deaths attributed to suffocation or strangulation, more than half occurred in co-sleeping circumstances where the sleeping and where the sleeping surface was noted, more than 80% of deaths occurred in an adult bed, a sofa or a couch. So I think that's the number one thing that pediatricians do urge parents um, to be mindful of if they do end up in co-sleeping arrangements is to really be careful about how, how you, um, what kind of surface the child is sleeping on, how they're sleeping, the position on the bed that they're sleeping, because, you know, it is, there are possibilities that something could happen.
2: So let's go over that. Let's go over, um, how you can safely co-sleep if that's what you choose
0: to do. So according to this New York Times article about co-sleeping, the first thing that you want to do to make, to set up a safe co-sleeping environment is to make sure that a little baby can't roll off and fall on the ground in the middle of the night. Wouldn't be fun. So you're going to want to push the bed against, flush against a wall or set up a padded guardrail on one side of the wall and then place the baby, um, between, uh, the mother and whatever barrier you have set up
2: which at first sounded pretty dangerous to me because it seems like the baby could just keep hitting the guardrail or fall down if the guardrail is not adequately put up but maybe maybe the message is just to really make sure that that barrier is good
0: well yeah because this this uh, article also points out that that's a better position for the baby than sleeping in between its two parents because i guess then you might you run the risk of making a baby sandwich (laughs)
2: Oh, is it wrong that the first thing I thought of is that that sounded kind of delicious? Um, Yes, it
0: is.
2: (laughs) Now, the second tip is to get a really big bed. Some of these articles are saying instead of using the money to buy a crib that you may never use, use the money to upgrade your bed so that you have enough room to spread out and don't feel like, you know, you're right on top of your baby.
0: Right. Get a a king-size, queen or king-size bed. And then you can also get something called a co-sleep bassinet, which is basically a little Carrier for that you put in your bed, yeah. for your baby.
2: It's still an arm's reach, and it, but it's still in a bassinet, but it's not walled off from you. Mm-hmm. It's like
0: a bed add-on. And uh and of course, you like you mentioned earlier, you want to make sure that you aren't drunk or intoxicated in any way, or on any kind of. Uh, debilitating medications and you aren't extremely tired and you aren't wearing any dangling jewelry or anything with like, you wouldn't want to wear a robe to bed because the the robe tie could end up getting wrapped around your your baby's little neck. And then here's a tip from
2: Dr. Sears. You cannot really co-sleep if you're extremely obese. And this is a direct quote. Obesity itself may cause sleep apnea in the mother in addition to the smothering danger of pendulous breasts and large fat rolls. I mean, that was not very sensitive of Dr. Sears, in my opinion. But that's what the doctor says. Doctor's orders. And he also notes that just because you're co-sleeping with a baby in a bed doesn't mean you should co-sleep on a couch, uh, because that is a dangerous place for a kid Mm -hmm. to sort of roll off and get trapped in cushions and whatnot. And also
0: not on any waterbeds or other kind of squishy um, surfaces that uh, that would be more dangerous for the baby
2: and it's not just putting the baby in bed with any person like they say that a babysitter really shouldn't be in the bed with the baby cuz apparently only according to Dr. Sears the mother is the one that has this heightened sensitivity to where the baby is at all times.
0: Well, yeah, because isn't since this is all part of attachment parenting, not attachment sitting, wouldn't you want to make sure that you are, you know, you're you're nurturing the bond between uh mother and father and child? Well, I mean, that's where
2: this whole theory sometimes gets controversial is, you know, do you want an over-attached kid? That's sort of why some of these parents who do this feel judged is, you know, if you have a kid who can't even be left alone with a babysitter, then do you just have an overly needy kid? I mean, you can go back and forth and make the argument a million different ways, which I hope our listeners will do when they weigh in on this, but there are some people who say, uh, you know, are you only attaching your baby to one thing mm-hmm. and making them overly needy for the rest of their lives? Or if you did have, you know, a baby who could sleep on its own, or sleep with a babysitter, or sleep with its brother on vacation. Do you have a baby that's more adaptable to the world?
0: Yeah, and um, to top everything off, according to that parenting magazine survey, only 23% of uh, the pediatricians approved of the respondents' co-sleeping arrangements. So, obviously, this is a co-sleeping is a choice, you know, that's up to every parent. Mm-hmm. But be prepared for pediatricians to probably encourage you not to do that.
2: Right. But are pediatricians just too Western? Are we too Western, Kristen?
0: Maybe we are too Western.
2: Let's have our listeners weigh in on the topic. If you have a co sleeping story, if you think it's better to let kids cry it out and become independent, or if you think that they become more independent by feeling really close to you, let us know. All right. So why don't we do a little bit of listener mail, Molly? <laughs> okay. I have some emails that are from our a Wire Woman Attracted to Vampire's Podcast, and a lot of our mail dealt with two big omissions that we made. One is about Anne Rice, and one is about the true uh, influence of Buffy. So why don't you start with the Anne Rice stuff, Kristen?
0: Okay, um, this is from Becky, and she says, I think your Wire Women Attracted to Vampire's Podcast may be remiss in not mentioning the huge influence of Anne Rice's books. ...on the modern vampire genre. There's a leap between Buffy and Twilight, and the Anne Rice books fall in that gap. Not modern and ironic like Buffy, not super stylized and oddly squeaky clean like the Twilight gang. Her vampires were gothic, weird, sexy, and living in modern times. It was all groundbreaking at Revelation. Up until that point, the old Bella Lugosi character was always thought about vampires. To think of them still living among us was an amazing thought. As a youth in the 80s, all her vampire Lestat books or almost required reading Among Us. I think, too, especially in, in case of the interview with a vampire movie, uh, that her vampires were attractive for a reason you might not have mentioned, sexual ambiguity and androgyny, attractive to women and men, and dangerous yet oddly safe as they weren't often super masculine and violent. You'll probably get some mail about the lost voice from some other Gen Xers like me. That was another huge impact in the modern vampire revolution.
2: Okay. Now, our next email is from Annie, and Annie is one of the many people who wrote in to talk about um, maybe some mischaracterization of Buffy as feminist that we made. So she writes, I have to say, sadly, that I disagree with your take on that show. Buffy, for the first three seasons, basically lived her angel. In season one, she was just as worried about the status of her relationship with him as she was at destroying the master. When angel turned evil in season two, she had the opportunity to kill him several times, but held back because she still loved him and was unable to accept that the angel she knew was gone. Her failure to suck it up and do her job allowed Angel to wreak some serious damage on the Sunnydale population. What's so great about Buffy, though, is that she evolves. She starts off as self-absorbed and boy-crazy, more concerned about dating and driving and surviving high school than she is about her destiny. By the end of the last season, she's embraced her destiny and actually figures out a way to share her power with other women. It's no longer about her relationship with Angel or Spike. It is about her relationship with her own female power and her relationship to other females. The fact that Buffy isn't perfect is, to me, part of what makes her so special in feminist culture. She's hard to define in any way. She's complex, and she fulfills many roles, and I think that makes her a pretty cool role model. All right. So if you have something to say about vampires, co-sleeping, or just life, email us at momstuffathowstuffworks.com. If you want to read what we're writing about, check our blog, howtostuffathowstuffworks.com, or one of the many articles that we've written over at, you guessed it, howstuffworks.com
0: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check
1: out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking.